Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's The Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, April 14th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. Very glad, very honored, very grateful to have you all here every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Lots of good stuff there, all sorts of goodies, many ways to listen live. Also, the podcast, which is free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, also FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Programming note, I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Baer and the crew. I'm on the panel. Looking forward to that right around 645 Eastern time. Hope to see you there. Fox News Channel here on the radio. Here's our lineup. General Jack Keane will visit with us later this hour. The latest out of Ukraine, a pretty significant blow to the Russian Navy. We'll get into details there with General Keene. Later on, Jason Chaffetz will join us talking politics of the day. Yet another round barrage of terrible polling for President Biden. We'll get the analysis from former Congressman Chaffetz and then current Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin. He'll be here in our final hour. A lot to get to here on the program. I want to begin with a topic today that is not necessarily leading the news. It's not leading any of the newscasts. You're not going to see above-the-fold headlines about this story in any of the major papers around the country. However, I made a promise to you on this show that there were a few issues that we were not going to forget about here. Whether it was a hot topic or not, one of those issues is immigration, and we will get to immigration and an update in the next hour, a big update. So stay tuned for that. But we open the show on Afghanistan. Remember Afghanistan? Do we all remember Afghanistan? Because it has been basically absent from the news cycle for many months. And I think sometimes that will lull people into a sense of, well, maybe things are getting better, or it's so unpleasant, best not to think about it. Well, we will bring you an update here in just a moment. Before we get to the update, I want to play you a few flashback sound bites from the President of the United States. It was last August that the withdrawal occurred. And if you look at the polling numbers and you look at the real clear politics average, for example, over the course of the entire Biden presidency, there is an inflection point last August when the disgraceful fiasco 
of a U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan took place, where the president went from having an approval rating above water to dipping underwater and then crashing, and he has never recovered. So whether or not we are thinking a lot top of mind about Afghanistan these days, that was a tipping point. That was a moment where I think a lot of illusions or delusions just fell apart and melted away when it comes to the abilities and competence of the current administration. Now, leading up to that fiasco, President Biden had made a lot of assurances to the American people about the way his policy would be carried out. Whether you agree or disagree with the decision to withdraw all of our forces from Afghanistan, and a lot of Americans agree, certainly agreed leading up to that moment. And when they've defended the way that it went down, the way that it was executed, they often go back to the decision itself on substance, not the actual carrying out of that decision, which is why so many people were disgusted. They were not disgusted necessarily by the choice the president made. They were disgusted by the way the choice was handled. So one year ago, April 2021, President Biden made this promise about the upcoming withdrawal. This was a year ago, cut 24. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately and safely. They did conduct a hasty rush to the exit. It was not safe. It was not responsible. What he said was going to happen, the opposite happened. You can poll a lot of people, hey, do you want to get out of Afghanistan if we do it in an incremental, smart, strategically wise way that keeps our people and our allies safe? I think you've got a lot of people saying yes in response to that poll question. And then reality intervened, and we all saw what happened. And as we were watching it happen, people falling from airplanes, that bombing outside the airport, killing our men and women, thousands of people at extreme risk of being left behind and then, in fact, being left behind, the commander-in-chief went on television and said this in Cut 25. The extraordinary success of this mission was due to the incredible skill, bravery, and selfless courage of the United States military and our diplomats and intelligence professionals. For weeks, they risked their lives to get American citizens, Afghans who helped us, citizens of our allies and partners and others on board planes and out of the country. An extraordinary success. I know you've heard this before, but you may not have thought about that particular formulation in a while. I want you to hold on to that and remember it. An extraordinary success, he said. Talking about all these amazing efforts to get our citizens, our people, and our allies out. Even though thousands of Americans, thousands were left behind. Thousands of Americans were left behind. And tens of thousands of our allies who we promised to get out were also left behind. And then he kind of claimed mission accomplished, even though that was actively not accomplished, and cheered the whole thing as an extraordinary success. An astounding thing for him to say. 
Now, it was June of last year, leading up to this moment, that he made a promise, not just to Americans, but also to those aforementioned allies in Cut 31. Those who helped us are not going to be left behind. You know what country they're going to move to first? I don't know that. I'll be meeting with the uh, with Ghani tomorrow. He's coming to my office. That will be discussion, but they're welcome here, just like anyone else who risked their lives to help us. Anyone who helped us is not going to be left behind. If you risked your life to help us, they're going to be welcome here. That was a promise. He said it over and over again. He said it about American citizens. He was asked about, well, what about the Afghan allies? Yes. The promise, the pledge, the vow, the solemn word of the United States president, and by extension, our country, our government, was extended to tens of thousands of people, including thousands of Americans, and that word was shattered in Afghanistan. Why am I bringing all this up today? Why play these flashbacks for you today of all days, beyond the fact that one of those clips is a one-year anniversary clip about how safely and responsibly the withdrawal would be undertaken? That's part of it. The bigger part is there is a report at National Review just to remind you that this nightmare, based on the broken promise of this president, which is a shame and a stain, on the country and certainly the legacy of this president. That nightmare is ongoing. Here's the headline at National Review, and I'm grateful that they're still doing this work. U.S. Embassy staff destroyed passports as Taliban took over, trapping American allies in Afghanistan. And by the way, they were destroying a bunch of passports because they recognized those passports were likely to fall into the hands of the murderous terrorists who would then use those passports as a kill list to go around hunting those people down and murdering them because they were collaborators. So rather than handing the Taliban to whom the Biden administration just ceded control, not only of the country, but of Kabul, even during the withdrawal itself, during the chaos, rather than giving them that kill list, they destroyed a bunch of documents and passports except those passports were the ticket out of the country and to safety for thousands of people who had earned them. And then that record, that lifeline, was destroyed because of the chaos in the midst of an absolute mess, a withdrawal that was planned shockingly, scandalously, terribly despite all the assurances and promises otherwise. Here's what the story says, National Review Today. For months, Rabah has been in hiding, moving from place to place in Afghanistan. Trying to stay one step ahead of the Taliban warriors he believes are out to kill him. The 30-year-old former interpreter for U.S. Special Forces hasn't seen his wife or four kids in weeks. He has little food. He has repeatedly tried to escape to Pakistan and Iran to no avail. Imagine being so desperate that you're trying to escape into Iran. The problem, according to Rabah, is his lack of passport, which was destroyed by U.S. Embassy staff as they evacuated Kabul last summer. There is no option for me, said Rabah, 
who spoke to National Review on the condition that his real name would not be published. They destroyed my passport, which means they destroyed my whole life. If I had a passport, everything was possible. Without a passport, I can do nothing. The story quotes some people who have been trying to still, to this day, they're still trying to get Afghanistan citizens and even some Americans out of that country. One of them, Ben Owen, says that there are absolutely thousands of people still in this exact position. Quote, there's no doubt about that. The story goes on talking about this man. He's, em- he's emblematic of many others. He said that he assisted the United States for years, and he's now on a Taliban kill list. Getting replacement passports can be treacherous. Rabah said he paid at least $5,000 for his family's original application and documents, which went through. That's a lot of money for anyone, especially someone in Afghanistan, five grand. He did it trusting us. He paid that money trusting us, putting his life and his family's lives in our hands. Paid $5,000, got the documents, never actually received them, then had to pay another $3,150 to replace the passports that had been destroyed in August. When those were ready, he sent his nephew to pick them up. But then his nephew was intercepted and taken into custody by the Taliban. He says the Taliban has now searched his home multiple times looking for him. When he was working as an interpreter for the United States, he helped us interrogate many Taliban prisoners, these terrorists. Those terrorists are now in power. Quote, those people know me, he said. If they find me, surely they will kill me. And this is one example, one man out of thousands. I know a lot of us here have moved on. Afghanistan barely makes a blip ever on social media, on mainstream media, even conservative media these days. But this waking nightmare for thousands of people that we made a promise to is not over. It is ongoing every day, every night. People who risk their lives to help us, we promised they would get out of that country before we left, and then we left them. At the time, it was thousands of Americans, tens of thousands of people like this man that they're calling Rabah in the National Review story. It's not over just because we don't think about it so much anymore. Reading the story this morning, I got angry again. Because admittedly, some of the emotions from last summer and early fall had subsided a bit because there's so much other stuff. I mean, there's so many other major stories out there. Immigration, crime, Ukraine, inflation, on and on it goes. And life goes on. But for these people, this is their life. And we still owe them that debt. We still do. The Biden administration would be very happy, I think, for no American voters to ever think about these people ever again. And I am grateful again to National Review for doing the service of still writing about this so I could read it to you on the air and play you those clips. 
because it wasn't really that long ago. It was less than a year ago. It was less than a year ago that this all happened. And I told you at the time on the air, we would talk about this issue. We would not just let it go. Perhaps we have not been as on the ball as we should have been, finding ways to work Afghanistan into this show more often, and that's on me. But I wasn't going to make that mistake again today, and I wanted to start the show with it today because I would have been derelict to read that story this morning and not share it with you. I tweeted it as well, at Guy P. Benson, if you want to go find it and read it for yourself. On that note, we have to take a break. General Keene is coming up. I will ask him about Afghanistan in addition to Ukraine. He's later on this hour. A very busy Thursday edition of The Guy Benson Show is underway. Please stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. I'm Guy Benson. We're starting to see some COVID restrictions come back for no reason, certainly no scientific reason. Mass mandates returning some places. Mass mandates being extended on airplanes, for example. Fauci called it prudent. That's prudent. Parents who might be worried about the well-being of their children and all the harm done to their children, I think should be reminded of a few things. We talked about this study that was put out. The Wall Street Journal wrote it up earlier in the week. That gave a score, basically a ranking of each state based on their COVID outcomes on the economy, on schools, and on COVID mortality. And the best-performing states were the ones attacked by the media, and the worst-performing states were the ones cheered by the media. And you can figure out the politics for yourself. It's not that complicated. On the education rankings, which was done by percentage of in-person school days, of the best 20-performing states for kids having schools open, 19 of the 20 states had Republican governors. 19 of 20. The one exception was Louisiana, a very red state. Of the worst performing 20 in the country, the worst performing 20 states out of, I guess, 51 if you include D.C., 18 had Democratic governors. And the only red governors, Republican governors in that list, are Massachusetts and Maryland in very blue states. Dead last, Oregon, California, D.C., the bluest places out there. Parents, take notice about who inflicted harm on your kids with closed schools and why. General Jack Keene is next. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. 
That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is always free. And we are happy to welcome back now to the program General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, welcome back. Delighted to be here, as always. I want to start actually on Afghanistan because I opened the show today reading a National Review account where they profiled a young man, 30 years old, an interpreter for the U.S. for years in Afghanistan as our special forces interrogated terrorists. Now those terrorists are trying to track him down and kill him. He hasn't seen his family in months. He is still stuck there. Our documents that we made for him to get out were destroyed in the chaos as the U.S. withdrew back last August. And I just read from that story today because I feel like almost no one is talking about Afghanistan anymore. But one year ago, President Biden promised this about the then upcoming withdrawal. Cut 24. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately and safely. Responsibly, deliberately and safe, safely. It will not be hasty. And, of course, we saw what we saw. General, just your reflection on that since we're talking about it today. Yeah, well, certainly it was anything anything but that. And, you know, when President Biden made his decision in uh, in April of 21, uh, he he certainly uh, put everything in motion because it was an unconditional uh, surrender. Uh, He he was going to move out of the country. Um, had, had no conditions set, no phase phases set to make certain that the Taliban were complying, and a, a, as a result of it, uh, the country began to collapse. And, and the fact that we were not providing any air support to the ground component, the Afghan security forces themselves, and this had been going on for some time, actually going back to the Trump administration when the negotiations began, it gave the Afghan security forces guy a real sense of what it would be like for them without any air support from the United States. And the deal that the Trump team made was that while the Afghan would not attack the United States and the United States would not attack the Afghans, um, the fact is, the Taliban could attack the Afghans, and we had no air support to to assist them. So it was it, it took two administrations to get to where we were. Uh, but I'm also convinced that it's likely uh, if Trump was still in power, he probably would have enforced some conditions before that withdrawal took place. At least that was uh, the intent of the uh, he had prior to the. Uh, prior to him not being elected. So yeah, yeah, and look, in, in addition, right. I was going to say, and of course it is, it's a tragedy. And the point is it's an ongoing tragedy. Setting aside whatever terrible, festering terrorist threat is now once again percolating in Afghanistan, you have thousands of people who helped us that we promised to get out, promised, about as solemn as it gets, that we then abandoned. And the example that I read about earlier is one person out of thousands and as I said earlier, we may have moved on in this country, but those people can't. 
They're stuck there with ruthless killers who want them dead. And I just wanted the audience to remember that because we're talking a lot about Ukraine and we should. Uh, That is a war that we had a central role in. And we betrayed, unfortunately, a lot of people. This president, this administration betrayed a lot of those people. And the betrayal continues to this day. On Ukraine, General Keene, a big development, the sinking of a very important Russian ship. Now, the Ukrainians say that they did it with this mission where they distracted the Russians and then uh, torpedoed the ship. Or there was a a missile that they used, a Neptune missile. Uh, That ship has been abandoned and is sinking or has sunk. And we know that other Russian naval vessels have now moved out of the area. Uh, They're trying to claim that this might have just been a fire on board, some sort of accident. But I don't know why they would move the rest of their fleet out of there if it was just a a weird accident on one ship. It seems more likely that the Ukrainians were able to strike a pretty major blow here. What are you seeing and reading about this? What's the significance of this development? Well, it it is very significant because what the Ukrainians are trying to do here uh, with their land forces is occupy the land associated with the southern coast of of Ukraine, which would force Ukraine to be a landlocked country and would deny them access to the Sea of Azov and also to the Black Sea. And it would be devastating economically uh, to the Ukrainians. So, and short of that, let's assume that their land forces aren't able to occupy that entire coastline uh, but let's also assume that Mariupol falls, and that way they have a land bridge, uh, certainly to Crimea. But it would be their navy uh, that would enforce the blockade and deny the Ukrainians the port of Odessa, even though they, the Ukrainians still own that port. And that is one of the reasons why, uh, first of all, the fact that we've given them um, – they have anti-ship weapons. and Neptune, they didn't get from us. But nonetheless, we have harpoons, but they can't use them because they don't have the launch systems uh, to do that. Um, but it's very significant because it sends a, a huge message to the, uh, to the Russians about what their objectives are. But I, I, I really believe that the United States and NATO should be back in international waters in the Black Sea. I, I thought it was... Uh, somewhat shameful that when this uh, the precursor to the invasion, you know, back prior to February, uh, we pulled all of our, sh- our all of our ships out of the Black Sea and gave the Russians, you know, free reign. I thought that was literally a mistake. I'm not talking about having a trying to get into a maritime conflict with the Russians in the Black Sea, but we have a right to be there as well. And the fact that we just abandoned the field, uh, it made no sense to me. But it, it is significant, and your, your logic is absolutely right. I mean, the Ukrainians are claiming they did this. We have no reason to doubt it. And certainly the fact that the Russians once again are pulling all their ships away, like they did once before when the Ukrainians uh, damaged one of their ships, it just tells what the truth really is. And so, yeah. And this is the uh, Moskva uh, is the name of this ship, and it's apparently the flagship for the Russian Navy in the Black Sea. So that is not only operationally significant, but also symbolically significant. They're rattling the Russians and making them feel like maybe they're not impenetrable, uh, you know, on the high seas. No, there's no doubt about it. This is a high-value capital asset in uh, in the Russian Navy, and the uh, Ukrainians have have landed them a very humiliated and embarrassing uh, defeat here. 
and and certainly uh, it portends of, of what's to come. And I, I may say that even though the Russians are consolidating their forces uh, to launch attacks into the east, so far as we're tracking this at the Institute for the Study of War, the Russians are behaving much as they did for the Battle of Kiev, the capital city. By that I mean they're roadbound, single file down the roads, even though uh, even though this is open terrain that they're moving into. Uh, it makes them very vulnerable to the Ukrainians. They're committing their forces piecemeal, as opposed to putting. So, audience, just bear with me a second. With open terrain like that, it's armor warfare. So you would put your tanks and armored vehicles out, spread them out in formations, attack formations supported by artillery. You would have air support covering all of that and then launch that offensive operation into the Ukrainians' defenses. And they're not doing that at all. They're uh, making the same I mistakes, think, it sounds like. A- absolutely. It, the, the sa- they're almost conditioned uh, to make the same mistake. And I, I'm stunned by it again. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm never going to underestimate the Ukrainians again. That, that's for sure. So I'm hoping that they're able to continue what they're what they're doing. And maybe this so-called new Russian offensive is not going to be anything uh, close to what the, the Russians think it'll be. Question for you, General Keene. I was thinking about this last night. We talked about this example on this show, and a few of our guests have brought it up as well. The U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson surprising the world by arriving in Kiev and meeting face-to-face with Zelensky, walking the streets of Kiev, a very powerful signal, I think, to see a world leader, a major Western leader doing that. And we'd seen other EU leaders and, and Eastern European leaders. I think seeing Boris Johnson there was really actually quite inspiring, at least to me. I thought that was really great. Uh, And I think a huge morale boost to Zelensky and to others. People have asked the question, where's Biden? Why didn't our president do something like that? He was over there recently in the neighborhood. He didn't cross over even into western Ukraine. Now there are reports that they're talking about maybe sending someone from the Biden cabinet, whether it would be a cabinet secretary, maybe even the vice president, someone else. But the question I had was, if President Biden, the commander in chief, the leader of the free world, if our president decided, because he sort of said something in allusion to, oh, they won't let me go there, meaning, I guess, his handlers or whomever. If the commander in chief decided, I want to go into Ukraine, I want to meet with Zelensky. How would that happen in a way that would be safe? Is that realistically feasible? Because I know, you know, Boris Johnson is a big deal. President of the United States is a bigger deal. Could that be done safely, responsibly? It, well, I, I don't know all the facts of it, to be frank about it. But if the president of the United States wanted to do that, after all, he's in charge. The Secret Service is not. What they do is provide their best advice. Uh, they do take charge of a president if there was a crisis and an attempt on his life. Obviously, the president is no longer sort of in charge at that moment. They're, they're going to rescue him and remove him from seeing. But in terms of planning, and uh, that would be likely done in conjunction with our military. And yes, I mean, I had the same instincts. I mean, I, I said exactly when I saw Boris Johnson there, I applauded what he was doing. And my instincts were, 
my God, where's the president of the United States? This is something we normally do. We're, lead, we're the leader of the world here. We're, we're the, the most influential country here. And it's certainly uh, Zelensky has been leaning on us because we are that in, the most influential country. And you're right. I mean, uh, what, what he should have done is when he was in Poland and, and maybe put the feelers out and let people know that the president is not going to go into Ukraine and certainly put that out there for the consumption of the Russians and make certain that that, that, that was a, at least a, a public fact and then slip him in there. And it would have been a marvelous thing to see. You know, I, I, I think... Do you think it's logistically uh, doable? I, I'm not uh, a Secret Service planner, but uh, Fair. I, it, it, would, it would be done uh, clandestinely. Uh, and I think it could be done, yes. The president would, would obviously be, would have to accept the risk that's associated uh, with something like that. Uh, but it would be would have been a, a shot in the arm to Zelensky, and also, I think it's you know a, a, a strong statement because we've had this problem with the president and his team before the war and when the war was being executed that he seemed to be supporting Zelensky, but at the same time he seemed to be concerned about provoking Putin, and and I think that has been an underlying strategy of of the administration. I do applaud the fact, though, that this recent list of capabilities that they're sending into Ukraine that was published yesterday, it's comprehensive, and it, it, it contains much of the weapons that Zelensky and his generals are requesting. And it, it's yep. very good to see that, you know, finally happening. So that that's a strong statement. I, I also agree. Eight, thought that, 800 million. That, that, yeah, yeah. And it's not so much the money, it's the capability. I mean, they keep talking about the money, but it's it's the range of capabilities there. There's hundreds of, of armored vehicles that they're, they're sending, uh, and that is significant. In addition to uh, Swiss blade drones, and this is something I've been pushing, um, counter-battery radar. The Russians are loaded with artillery, and the artillery does tremendous damage. And when you have counter-battery radar, you can pick that artillery up, what its source is, and fire right at that source almost immediately after the Russians fire their weapons. So it's, it's very significant in dealing with the kind of combined arms conventional warfare uh, that, w that we are dealing with here. So that's good news for this administration. Taking a while, but they finally are getting there, and they've worked out a pretty good system uh, with the uh, with the generals and, and the military in Ukraine and getting their list. You know, we had a push system initially. We were pushing stuff on the Ukrainians, whether they needed it or not, thinking this we knew what they needed. And now it's all about the Ukrainians submitted very specific and detailed requests uh, to us and the other NATO nations. Much better system, finally. General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, he is Fox News senior strategic analyst. Always appreciate your insights here on the show, General. We'll have you again soon. Yeah, you got it, pal. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. And with that, we will step aside briefly and come right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. So this is an interesting headline. From the New York Post, it hadn't gotten really all that much uh, that much attention because the news cycle has been so crazy. But here it is: headline: Hunter Biden frequently covered family expenses. Texts reveal this was earlier in the week. Hunter Biden's access to lucrative financial opportunities also came with expectations, including kicking back as much as fifty percent of his earnings to his dad. Text messages on his old laptop show. Quote, I hope you can all do what I did and pay for everything for this entire family for 30 years. Hunter Biden groused to his daughter Naomi in January 2019. It's really hard. But don't worry, unlike Pop, i.e. Biden, Joe Biden, I won't make you give me half your salary. Now, could this have just been Hunter Biden popping off about pop and maybe exaggerating a little bit or not conveying the facts with scrupulous accuracy. Yeah, that's entirely possible and certainly within the character that we seem to know about Hunter Biden. But this is also a written record of the president's son at least suggesting in private text messages to his daughter that because of the windfall that he reaped from his family name, All these millions that he gathered from Ukraine and Russia and China and elsewhere, trafficking in his family's name, that income, which was not Joe Biden's income, that was Hunter Biden's income, that was nevertheless expected to and did, in fact, according to him, pay for family expenses for years. And he at least suggests that his father, Joe Biden, now the president, made him give up, quote, half my salary. And that could just be, again, an angry person not speaking accurately or texting accurately. But this is at least an accusation by the president's son that would involve now the president of the United States, not a private matter involving the president's son, but again bringing up the big guy, Pop in this case. Do we have any curiosity among journalists on this question? I won't hold my breath. Another hour coming up. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show a new hour on the guy benson show so fresh so clean thanks for joining us guy our website 
podcast free every day on demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com. Still to come, Jason Chaffetz later this hour. Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, in the next hour. Fox News alert here as we begin our middle hour between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. That would be the 4 o'clock hour Eastern. The Dow closes down 113 points, ending the day at 34,451. One other reminder, I'm on special report tonight. On the panel around 645 Eastern, that's with Brett Baer, Hugh Hewitt, Leslie Marshall, and I'm looking forward to all of that. You can set your DVRs, you can tune in live. Special report, 6 p.m. hour, Fox News Channel. Well, we began today's show with a flashback on Afghanistan. We are now going to do a series of flashbacks with an update involving the border crisis and illegal immigration. Another topic and general subject matter that we have made a promise to you that we are not going to ignore or neglect. Even when news cycles move away, these are priorities, at least here on this show. So I'd like you to remind yourself and think back with me to last September. We've covered this on the program. We did so at the time. I've given you a few updates along the way. But it's worth going back and remembering that there was a huge crisis, a microcosm of the crisis within the broader border crisis in Texas with all those Haitian national illegal immigrants under that bridge. Remember that? And just the optics, the images were terrible for the Biden administration. And there was a large number of some of the Haitian nationals and other illegal immigrants crossing the river and trying to get onto land, onto U.S. soil. And there were some U.S. agents, Border Patrol agents, on horseback who were trying to corral some of these people and take them into custody. And because some left-wing activists on Twitter, basically, saw images and footage of this happening and misunderstood, misinterpreted what was going on, an entire narrative was born in a flash. The narrative was these American Border Patrol agents are whipping these illegal immigrants. These American agents are whipping dark-skinned migrants. That is the way it was portrayed. So it went from the activist class. This is the way it works, by the way. It went from the activist class on Twitter with the word I'm looking for here is misinformation being spread. And that trickled up to mainstream media who follow these activists, agree with these activists, saw an opportunity to cover the border, the border crisis as a negative story for U.S. officials, right? It's generally a bad story for the Biden administration. This was a, a golden opportunity to at least say, hey, look at these racist law enforcement officers, which is a little bit more copacetic with their worldview. So that became the story, the whipping of the migrants. In a border crisis, they had been largely ignoring for the most part, month after month. Like Occasionally, stuff would flare up, and they would talk about it, and then they would go away, except for Bill Malugin, our colleague, and a few others. But here was something that they could really dig their teeth into, a scandal involving American law enforcement 
where there was a racial component, a violence component, so the media ran with it. And the word whipping whipped around the news media. That was the narrative. That word was central to it. And then it trickled up from the mainstream media to their other allies. This is a whole, like, totem pole of left-wing alliance. Progressive activists, immigration activists, many of them just, frankly, pro-illegal immigration. Journalists, mainstream journos, that whole class or that caste. And then the Democratic Party. And that is an unofficial but sometimes almost official alliance. See, they got up to the very top, to the White House. And at first, the Secretary of Homeland Security had knocked down the whipping talking points because he had communicated with some of the leaders of Border Patrol and they had explained what had happened. And Mayorkas was saying, well, you know, hold on, hold your horses, so to speak. But within 24 hours, the talking point had congealed. Official Democratdom was horrified by what had happened, disgusted by the whipping, deeply troubled and promising accountability. So here was the DHS secretary. This was last September, cut 19. Uh, One cannot weaponize a horse uh, to aggressively attack a child. That is unacceptable. That is not what our policies and our training require. Please understand, let me be quite clear. Um, That is not acceptable. We will not tolerate mistreatment. And we will address it with full force based on the facts that we learned. Now, there was no whipping. The whips here were reins to control the horses, not to whip people. But there were some, like, screenshots and still photos where people got it in their heads, and this is how the misinformation game of telephone made it all the way up to the White House. And Mayorkas had been saying the opposite thing before that clip, by the way. Then he got straightened out. Hey, this is what we believe as progressives. Our base is angry. The journalists, another crucial part of our base, they're angry. So here's the vice president piling on. Cut 21. What I saw depicted about um, those individuals on horseback treating human beings the way they were is horrible. And um, I fully support what is happening right now, which is a thorough investigation into exactly what is going on there. Um, But human beings should never be treated that way. And I'm deeply troubled about it, and I'll also be talking with Secretary Mayorkas today about it. So it's horrible, deeply troubled. The President, Joe Biden, he chimed in as well. So this game of telephone went to the very top. The game of telephone ended, in fact, with the President of the United States, who went even further, cut 20. It was horrible what to see, as you saw. To see people treated like they did, horses barely running them over, people being strapped. It's outrageous. I promise you those people will pay. They will be an investigation underway now, and there will be consequences. People being strapped, i.e. whipped, didn't happen. And those people, meaning the agents, will pay. There will be consequences. Now, I know they always say, oh, we don't want to prejudge or comment on an ongoing investigation. Well, in that case, the president did. He said the agents were whipping illegal immigrants, and they're going to pay. And with everyone in a frenzy, whipped up into a frenzy, you might even say, 
Secretary Mayorkas promised this investigation that we just heard several people talking about there in the sound bites. And here's what he said. This was last September again, all within a span of a few days. Cut 33. Any mistreatment or abuse of a migrant is unacceptable, is against Border Patrol policy, training, and our department's values. Indeed, we have directed an investigation. That investigation is underway, and it will be conducted swiftly, and the public needs and deserves to know its results. I also have directed that the Office of uh, Professional Responsibility be on-site in Del Rio full-time. We will not tolerate any mistreatment of an individual. No tolerance on this. There must be an investigation. It will be done swiftly because the public needs to know the truth. The American people deserve the truth, so we're going to have that swift investigation into what we saw. So you had people put on leave, if I recall correctly. They had been called abusers. There were references to whipping and strapping all the way to the president himself. Biden said those folks would pay for what they had done. And then his underling at DHS said, we're going to have that investigation and it's going to happen quickly. Swiftly was his word. Swift investigation. Okay, so that was September. Then what happened? Nothing. Nothing in September, nothing in October, nothing in November, nothing in December. New Year, 2022, Happy New Year. Nothing in January, nothing in February, nothing in March. This swift investigation, where, by the way, there were cameras everywhere. We all saw the footage. The investigation was just looking at the footage. And a bunch of experts and agents and Border Patrol leaders said they weren't whipping anyone. They were using reins, not whips, to control the horses, which is literally what they are trained to do while a bunch of illegal immigrants were trying to walk onto U.S. soil unlawfully. They were doing their job. The whipping was a canard. This was a smear, and it was apparent as a smear, proven to be one. Within hours, just by looking at the actual footage that a few activists online misunderstood and turned it into an entire fake story. And that swift investigation went absolutely nowhere, at least publicly, month after month after month. So here we are roughly half a year later. And by the way, it just reminds me when the Academy Awards, the Academy said, oh, we're going to do an investigation into the slap, Will Smith and Chris Rock. Oh, we're going to we're going to investigate what happened. It was on national television. It was on live TV. We all saw it. And actually, they handed down the punishment for Will Smith, 10 year ban from the Oscars in a matter of days. Here's another circumstance where it was all on camera. We all saw it. It was played on loop. Although, actually, it was fairly revealing. A lot of folks would only put still shots of photos up on the screen, right, to sort of continue the lie that this was human beings being whipped and strapped by Border Patrol agents, which was not true. And if you watched the video, you could immediately see that was the case, or in this case, was not the case. 
But it took about half a year for them to do or say anything. And from time to time on this show, I would just pipe up, just raise my hand here, little old me on the Guy Benson show. Whatever happened to that investigation? What happened to those agents who were attacked and besmirched and smeared by the president of the United States on down? Biden saying that they were going to pay. What happened to that investigation? They said it was going to be swift because we needed answers. Okay, fine. Where's the accountability that we were promised? Well, guess what? Last night on special report, just in passing, we got this from our colleague Lucas Tomlinson, cut 35. Back at the border, Fox News has learned that officials have cleared the horse-mounted Border Patrol agents of wrongdoing after they were accused of whipping migrants in September and placing them on probation. Cleared. Fox News learned in April of 2022 that these agents were cleared of wrongdoing. Now, there's some ambiguity based on what I've read. They were cleared certainly of criminal wrongdoing. That seems beyond obvious. There were no indictments. But have they been totally cleared of any professional wrongdoing or are they still in this purgatory? I'm not sure what the answer is to that, but it needs to end. This is a witch hunt of officers who did what they were trained to do. People lied about what they did. And it seems to me my theory of the case is because you had everyone in sort of like official leftism all angry and spun up over this because it was their chance again to talk about the border crisis in a way that blamed people that they're used to blaming. They bought hook, line and sinker into something that was false, was misinformation, and they were embarrassed to admit it. So they just let this thing wither on the vine for months, hoping that people would forget and they would quietly, I guess, release their decision or leak their decision to someone. I'm surprised they didn't do it on a Friday. Right before a holiday weekend or something, and then just move on and wash their hands of it. And probably the administration realizes that morale among Border Patrol is at an all-time low right now because of all their disgracefully failing policies. And another failed policy that's coming next month that's going to make this whole thing explode into the stratosphere. And what way to make morale even worse, to drive it even lower than to keep these agents twisting in the wind. Because that's what they've done now for months. That word accountability kept coming up. This is not acceptable. People will be held accountable. They'll pay, said Biden. Okay, if they've been cleared of wrongdoing, then who actually deserves to pay for this entire kerfuffle, this entire drama, this whole saga? And it has been those things for these people involved. Imagine being one of those officers. These are citizens, low-level government employees who aren't really being allowed to do their jobs to begin with. Then they're taking off the job, removed from that position, pending this endless investigation, while a bunch of powerful people are out on television accusing them of things that they did not do and promising that they would pay to sort of satiate the anger of a certain activist class of progressives of whom this White House lives in apparent constant fear. They govern based on left-wing Twitter in a lot of cases, it would seem to me. Where do they get their reputations back? 
Where do they get accountability for what was said about them? I wonder if this is something where a defamation suit would even be possible. Would there be eligibility here? I don't know what the rules are. Maybe we can get a lawyer on the show about that. But it seems like there ought to be accountability here, not for the people who didn't commit this crime that they were accused of, but the people who loudly accused them of it, despite evidence looking them straight in the face at the time that it wasn't true. That's the accountability that I'm interested in. But these days, especially with Democrats still controlling Congress, I'm not terribly optimistic that that kind of accountability is likely to materialize. But that can change if Congress changes hands. So I will remind you once again, for so many reasons, November is coming. Don't forget this stuff. It matters. Elections have consequences. Let's create a big consequence in November. The Guy Benson Show returns after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. People are losing their minds because Elon Musk has offered to just buy Twitter outright. Like something like $43 billion he offered, I believe, just to buy the whole company. This is a hostile takeover attempt after he already was the largest stakeholder, shareholder, after that big purchase a few weeks ago. Now he's saying, all right, I want the whole thing. Here's my offer. And Twitter's having meetings about it. People are going crazy, especially on the left. Blue check marks running around. It's entertaining at the very least. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe more analysis on this tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. Joining us now is Jason Chaffetz, Fox News contributor, former chairman of the House Oversight Committee, author of the book, They Never Let a Crisis Go to Waste, and host of the Jason in the House podcast at foxnewspodcast.com. Jason, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, Guy. I want to play this for you. This is from the press briefing yesterday at the White House. I still can't believe that Saki, Jen Saki, circle back, is sticking with this talking point. She is, I guess. Cut 26. Does the White House still view inflation as transitory? That is the view of the uh, Federal Reserve and outside economists, and they all continue to project it will come down this year. So basically endorsing the transitory word. She said, well, that's the view of the Federal Reserve. Well, the chairman of the Fed, Jay Powell, said last year in November this in Cut 28. So I think the word transitory has different meanings to different people. To to many, it carries a time, a sense of of short-lived we, we tend to, 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 to ha- use it to mean that, that it won't leave a permanent mark uh, in, the, in the form of higher inflation. I think it's, it's probably a good time to retire that, that uh, word and try to explain more clearly what we mean. Let's retire the word transitory. That was back in November when we had already seen a lot of inflation month after month after month. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, in December of last year was asked about this, cut 27. I'm ready to retire the word transitory. Um, I, I can agree that that hasn't been an apt description of what we're dealing with. Not an apt description of what we've been dealing with. That was back in December. Add on additional months of major inflation, now well over a year of inflation, 
And Saki's asked at the podium, is it still the White House's view that this is transitory? And she says, yes, that, that is that is what the uh, Fed believes and it's going to come down. I'm just sort of uh, amazed. It seems very self-destructive for I, her to it, say that. that. It really is stunning because you've got to assume going into a press conference that you're probably going to get a question every day about inflation because it is the top of mind. And that was one of it was just a very poor performance, a ridiculous answer and not something that the White House is in concert with their chief financial people. I go ahead and keep saying that, but I think people know real wages are down. Inflation is up. And when they go to fill up their car, I don't care what kind of White House spin they tend to put on it. People will feel the pain. Now, someone who is putting his own spin on it is the president. He spoke earlier, and here was one of his claims that he made in Cut 34. What people don't know is that 70 percent of the increase in inflation was a consequence of Putin's price hike because of the impact on oil prices. Seventy percent of inflation, he said, is due to Vladimir Putin and the price hike. Jason, I mean, it's just not even remotely (laughs) close to plausible. You had huge inflation starting in January or February of last year. It's gone for 15, 16 months now. The invasion was less than two months ago in Ukraine. That's part of the factor maybe in the last few weeks. 70%. What on earth is he talking about? I I, I don't know. It's not a good look when you're the president of the United States and you're blaming somebody else. Uh, the, the whole premise of, John, of, of Joe Biden was that he knew Washington, D.C., he was going to unite the country, and that he was a man with a plan. I mean, how many times did they talk about he's a man with a plan? But he doesn't have a plan. He's pointing over at Trump or Putin or whoever, whatever the flavor of the month is or the day, but he doesn't have a plan. It's a distraction. And you know what? I, you see it getting repeated in the national media, which is just disgusting. Um, Look, it's not helpful, but the main causes and roots of inflation, as Milton Friedman said in his great speech back in the 70s, is you can only look to government and the Federal Reserve for inflation because they're the only ones that have the ability to print the massive uh, amount of money. You can try to blame anybody else, but it's government that creates this, and it's going to have to be government to help solve this, but it's not the plan and not the the issues and the things that the president and Kamala Harris are touting. Here's a Democrat who's telling the truth, a very uncomfortable truth, I would imagine, for the Democrats. Stephen Ratner, who was a top economic advisor in the Obama administration. This is a Democratic economist. uh, economist. He has, in the New York Times today, a piece. And his headline is, we may be on track for a recession just as the 2024 campaign kicks off. And he says a lot of this has to do with inflation. And here's one of the quotes from his New York Times piece. And again, this is an economist under Obama who now wrote this today. Quote, the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, which was the Democrat-only Biden plan last year that they passed with no Republican votes, the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan passed in the early days of the Biden administration will go down in history as an extraordinary policy mistake. That's Steve Ratner of, you know, Obama era, you know, Democratic you know, economics. And he is looking very carefully at the data and saying inflation is terrible. At the rate we're going, we might have a recession just in time for 2024, which would be obviously horrible for the Democrats. 
And he is pointing out specifically a multi-trillion dollar spending binge by the Democrats alone as one of the extraordinary policy mistakes of recent memory and recent uh, American political history. Those are his words, Jason. Yeah, you add them to Larry Summers and others that have, right. you know, Democratic uh, credentials. They will try to blame Republicans. They will try to blame Trump, as they always do. But the reality is uh, Democrats are given all the levers of power, the House, the Senate, and the presidency. They they mm-hmm. got their plan. They wanted more. They, they will tout that, hey, we need to tax higher and spend more, that that's going to somehow help solve the problem. But I think most people know that would exacerbate the problem. And when the federal government is spending just about 25 cents out of every dollar that's being spent in this country, uh, there are not many people who can get past that and just say, hey, this isn't a problem. It's the federal government and their policy that is creating these problems. And and there's no quick resolution to this. Um, I think things are going to get worse before they get better. Well, especially if they're in denial about it, right? There are things out of Biden's control. There is a, a bit of a Putin bump in some of this stuff. No question about that. There are other factors at play. Fine. But there are huge factors at play that are the fault of the Democrats and the ruling party, and they can deny it all they want. The American people aren't buying it. Quinnipiac, 33% approval rating. CNBC, 38% approval rating. Dismal, dismal stuff. Jason Chaffetz, my guest on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in every single weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. I just want to talk briefly about something that happened today in the state of Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law a new restriction on abortions in that state. It bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, so well into the second trimester. And, of course, the usual suspects are going crazy because they are abortion fanatics and or they are DeSantis loathers. And I just feel like this is a dead end for them politically. That's one point. Charlie Crist, for example, who is based on polling, the slight front runner to be the Democratic nominee down there ahead of the general election in the fall. He was attacking Ron DeSantis over this move saying that it's an unconstitutional affront to women's freedom and blah, blah, blah. Charlie Crist was a Republican governor not that long ago, and he pronounced himself very pro-life. He was a pro-life Republican governor. Then he became an independent. He was eh, not so sure on abortion. And now he's a Democrat. He just is a chameleon. He goes to whatever he needs to go to. He has no principles. He has no ideas. He has no sense of self whatsoever beyond, I'm a politician who wants power. So now he's in favor of late-term abortion on demand. Having been a supposedly pro-life governor on the Republican ticket not long ago. So that is an attack that's going to go, I think, basically nowhere for Charlie Crist and others. The other reason that I think this is a political trap for a lot of the critics is even though they may exist in a very thick pro-abortion bubble, which is online activism within the Democratic Party, high-level Democratic 
donor politics. I mean, it is really way out there on the issue of abortion. But poll after poll after poll shows that the American people are roughly split on legalized abortion generally. And the later you get into pregnancy, certainly the second and third trimester, support for broadly legal abortion on demand at those stages of pregnancy just falls off a cliff. Gallup has polled on this repeatedly, for example. So a 15-week second trimester ban on most abortions is broadly popular. Even a lot of pro-choice people who might be pro-choice, let's say, early on in pregnancy say, you know, month four, month five, that seems like a reasonable time to say no more. Which is why a 15-week ban, even a 12-week ban, is not just mainstream in terms of American public opinion. It is also mainstream in the international community in the Western world. Much of Europe has abortion bans at the 12-week mark and beyond. Certainly at the 15-week mark and beyond. This is the definition of mainstream. And I know that a lot of people, especially in newsrooms, cannot bring themselves to believe that. They hurt their own cause because they're abortion activists in the case of far too many journalists. They hurt their own cause by denying that reality, but it does not change the reality. One more point on the politics of this. The bill signing event from DeSantis and his team was masterful. They packed a huge room with supportive Floridians. And they had the governor flanked on all sides up on stage by dozens of women. Overwhelmingly, the people on that stage were women. Young women, middle-aged women, older women, white women, Hispanic women, black women. A kaleidoscope of women, pro-life women, people who support common-sense mainstream restrictions on abortion, standing and smiling and clapping as the backdrop as Governor DeSantis signed this bill into law today. Why do I mention that? Optics matter a lot in politics. And this actually gave me flashbacks to something that still sticks in my craw to this day, all the way back to 2003. I was like a freshman in college at the time. President George W. Bush, someone that I voted for and respect and was an intern in his White House. I have nothing negative to say about George W. Bush, a few policy disagreements, of course. But he was signing in 2003 the federal ban on so-called partial birth abortion, which is one of the most gruesome and grisly things I had ever heard of in my life. Of course it should have been banned. There was actually bipartisan support for banning it back before the Democrats went completely off the deep end on abortion radicalism. So he signed this ban into law at the White House, I believe, in 2003, And the image that the White House put out at the time was the president sitting there at the desk with the pen, signing the bill, surrounded by smiling, clapping, exclusively older white men. That's it. There was no one on the young side in the photo. There was no woman, not even one, in the photo. There was not a person of color in the photo. Now, does that mean that those white men were all wrong to be clapping for this policy? No, they were all right. 
as a white man myself, I was happy that Bush signed the bill. But the optics of that played directly into the hands of the critics and the media. And the media ran the photo saying Bush, surrounded by white men, signs abortion restriction. When that was a completely avoidable error. Banning partial birth abortion had like 80 percent approval in the country. They could have found any number of people from different backgrounds to be there fully enthusiastic that this widely supported outcome was happening. But instead, they didn't really think about that. And you had that image that I still think about. DeSantis basically took that image and did the total opposite. He anticipated the very predictable, lazy attacks that inevitably come from the left and from the media, one and the same, which is white man science attack on women's health care. Right. That's the way they're going to want to frame it. No matter how mainstream the bill is, no matter how morally correct the bill is, and I believe it absolutely is now a law, I should say, in Florida. That's the way that they are going to frame it up because that's the way that they think. That's the way they try to manipulate people. That's the way they try to divide people. And DeSantis and his team smartly understood precisely what they were going to do because they always do it. He said, "Okay, fine. Yes, I'm the one who's going to sign it proudly. I'm going to make sure that every single person standing around me is a woman. And it's a diverse group of women. So they'll lob their usual attacks And they'll engage in their typical hysteria, but the optics will make it a lot harder for them to do that if they're going to show any footage or any photographs whatsoever of the event that happened. That is smart. That is part of persuading people and getting buy-in and signaling not only that they're not going to play along with this attack on women line because there's virtually no – gender gap when it comes to abortion in polling. It also underscores the fact that a large majority of women, based on polling, support restrictions on abortion, including and especially second and third trimester abortion. So they were doing two different things without words, but just with imagery. They were sending a few different, I think, important messages just through the optics. And then on top of all of that, I think it is just straight up the right thing to do, even if it was unpopular, even if they did a bad optics signing ceremony, it would still be the right thing to do. I'm just happy and gratified to see someone doing the right thing and doing it a smart way. This should be common sense, 101 stuff for Republicans on this issue, but it's not necessarily all that common. So you might like another state's abortion law better. You might like another politician better. I just think the combination of a mainstream piece of legislation defended and introduced smartly with clever optics that preemptively debunk the coming attacks, that's a pretty sweet spot to hit. So hats off to DeSantis and Team DeSantis for nailing it, in my opinion, today. And that type of execution matters in politics, in addition to the substance, which, of course, matters more. 
but you don't necessarily win on substance without winning arguments. So you have to do what it takes to win arguments and put yourself in the best position to do so. And I think today was an example of exactly that phenomenon. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin is straight ahead. Our final hour next. o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour on this Thursday. It's the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be on special report tonight on Fox News Channel in the 6 p.m. hour, toward the end of the hour, part of the panel today, with Brett Bayer hosting, of course, and then fellow panelist Hugh Hewitt, my friend and mentor, and Leslie Marshall as well. That's right around 645 Eastern FNC special report. Hope to see you there. Our website here at the program, the radio side, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free, on demand, no charge whatsoever to you when the show ends just after 6 p.m. Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is just terrific and delicious. And it's actually hot here in D.C. And the best time for long drink, it's fine year-round, of course. But when it's hot outside and cold in your hand, that's the best. The Finnish long drink, most popular alcoholic beverage in Finland for 70 years here in America and expanding. TheLongDrink.com. TheLongDrink.com. You can see where it's sold near you. You can order online. Please drink responsibly, 21 plus only. And by the way, one of those expanded states in the footprint for the long drink just in the last couple of weeks is Wisconsin. Which brings us to our next guest, Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin in the 8th District. He serves on the House Armed Services Committee, among others, and he joins us once again by phone. Congressman, great to have you back on the show. Great to be back. I want to start with Ukraine and get some of your thoughts on some recent developments, starting with this apparent sinking of a major Russian war vessel. I know the Russians are trying to spin what happened. The Ukrainians are claiming credit. Regardless of the specifics, it seems like this is yet another blow to the Russian war machine. Your thoughts on that update? Well, if it's true that the Ukrainians sunk really the flagship vessel in Russia's Black Sea fleet with what is most likely a Neptune anti-ship missile, it is indeed a massive blow to the Russian Navy. And you could be talking about upwards of 500 Russian sailors who are in danger of losing their lives if they haven't already. Uh, It raises a lot of questions from a naval perspective as to why they didn't have better defenses against these systems. I mean, weapons have been pouring into the conflict. Uh, They had earlier uh, witnessed an attack against one of their amphibious uh, landing vessels, and so they had to be prepared for something like this happening. It just sort of adds to the, the mystifying incompetence of of the Russian military throughout this crisis. The final thing I'd say, it should also give us further 
um, cause to believe that if we continue to support the Ukrainians aggressively and if we don't allow our actions to be dictated by the fear of provoking Putin, we can give them a chance to, if not win the conflict outright, prevent further Russian territorial gains and prevent Russia from cementing a land bridge reaching from Crimea to Russia. Uh, they've been fighting bravely, but they still need uh, continued support from the West. From the start of this crisis, the uh, Biden administration has been reactive. They've been behind the curve. We recently had uh, the announcement of another military package, so that's a positive step forward. But we can't lose faith in our ability to provide them with the weapons that they need to win. Yeah, because we saw this weird reversal on the MiGs, the fighter jets, where the green light was given on national television by the secretary of state, and then a red light flashed like the next day, and that transfer was never facilitated by the U.S. government. We saw a similar dance just in these last few days where there were helicopters promised to the Ukrainians, and then that promise was rescinded. Then there was an outcry over the rescission of the promise. Then there was a phone call between the president and Zelensky. Then the helicopters were back in to this $800 million package. And look, I'm glad that they finally got around to the right thing and sending a lot more help, lethal help to the Ukrainians. I'm for that. Good for them. But I'm concerned with this pattern of rhetorical statements and then walkbacks and then policy statements and then walkbacks, where, as Nikki Haley told me yesterday, it feels like Zelensky has to beg the United States for certain things that have been publicly already promised to him. Well, add on to that the fact that you've had various um, defense officials uh, outright bragging about the success of their approach in Ukraine, bragging about the success of what they're calling integrated deterrence, when in fact deterrence failed uh, in Ukraine. It failed precisely because we, we failed to give Ukrainians the hard power on the front end of the conflict that they would need to deter an invasion of in the first place. So you're absolutely right. The MiG-29 uh, decision or lack thereof or flip-flop was a self-induced disaster. It made us look weak. It undermined our support of not just the Ukrainians, but a lot of our Eastern European allies who wanted to provide more systems. We've seen the same problem with uh, the S-300 air defense system that the Slovakians have offered. Now reports are that some of those are finally getting delivered. But again, we just we keep sending mixed signals and we're behind the curve. And as much as I celebrate this latest $800 million package, there are at least two cap- critical capabilities and weapon systems that the Ukrainians need that we are still not providing. Uh, one is a long-range artillery system uh, called the MLRS, and the other are anti-ship missiles, which we've just seen can play a key role in beating back Russian ships in the Black Sea. And again, this gets back to your broader point that we've witnessed over the past few weeks. The Biden administration has always seemed just a step behind when it comes to providing Ukrainian, the Ukrainians the weapons they need because of this deep-seated risk aversion, this fear of provoking Putin. Just consider the fact, guy, that 80 percent of the security system that we provided to Ukraine since the administration took office has come after uh, the invasion. Uh, think how many lives we could have saved if the weapons had been in Ukrainian hands before the conflict started. So, again, I, I think there's a lot of bipartisan support for Ukraine, and I'm not trying to be you know, unfair to the administration, but deterrence, as a matter of fact, failed because mm-hmm. we did not invest in the hard power necessary to make deterrence work. And we put all of our faith naively 
in the threat of sanctions as well as hashtag diplomacy, and Putin promptly ignored that. Oh, yeah, and I mean, it's inarguable that deterrence failed because the invasion happened. And then you had Biden come out and say that, well, really, the sanctions were never intended to deter in the first place because sanctions never deter, even though his official policy articulated by basically every single person in his administration had been exactly the opposite of that assertion for days, if not weeks, leading up to that strange reversal. So I think that your point is truly indisputable. I want to shift within this conversation to a grim topic. It is very exciting and heartening to see the Ukrainians be as successful as they have been at beating back the Russians and making significant gains and really uh, putting a lot of Russian soldiers, frankly, in the grave, uh, which is what they have to do to defend their country. But there are now allegations about potential chemical agents being used by the Russians in Mariupol. We know that the Russians have done this before in Syria and elsewhere. How can we confirm or get a handle on whether or not that's true? The president has said if chemical weapons are used by the Russians, there will be very severe consequences. What would those consequences in your mind need to look like, given the seriousness of that allegation, if in fact it's borne out and is confirmed? And then relatedly, Congressman, I saw the CIA director was giving a few comments earlier talking about the potential of tactical nuclear weapons being used by the Russians and how that threat should not be taken lightly or dismissed. That's another level of extremely frightening prospects, at least creeping into this discussion about the end game of this war. Your reaction to all of that? Well, the administration has shown a willingness to declassify certain intelligence uh, when necessary. And I think, you know, if indeed we have evidence of chemical weapons being used, this would be a situation in which it would make sense to declassify that intelligence and show the world the uh, war crimes on display by Putin in Ukraine and generate international support for a response. Now, Here's what concerns me, because I lived through this when I was the Middle East staff from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 2012 and 2013. If you remember back then, Barack Obama established a red line when it came to the use of chemical weapons in Syria by a Russian puppet state government, Bashar al-Assad's state. Uh, they used chemical weapons, and the Russians probably walked all over Obama's red line and far from uh, responding proportionally Obama jumped into the arms of the Russians to sign a weak arms control agreement that really did nothing on the ground. And so the president, President Biden, has now gone out and established another red line and promised a proportional response. And my concern is if he doesn't deliver on that in the face of indisputable evidence, we're going to see another version of what happened in the second half of the Obama administration, which was what would an appropriate proportional response be? Again, it depends on the scale of the attack, uh, but at a minimum, you'd have to go after targets. I guess you could do it through the Ukrainians, uh, but you'd have to go after targets, the Russian targets, inside the Donbass. And that, to this, up till now, uh, the, the Biden administration has not been willing to do that. Now, you could consider alternative domains and alternative weapons. There are, you know, cyber weapons that could deliver devastating effects, but I don't think that would be uh, proportional. And my fear here now is having established a red line, they're going to walk away from it and we'll see a very serious collapse of our credibility. So 
I guess, Guy, I'd have to really see the nature of the chemical weapons to give you a better answer on how we – chemical weapons attacks to give you a better answer on how we should respond. But we're really in a very precarious situation right now. And as for the CIA director's comments about tactical, tactical nuclear weapons, you know, I agree. I, I, I think Putin has demonstrated time and again um, his, the fact that he uh, considers human life to be cheap. And the Russians operate under a, a military doctrine of escalate to de-escalate, and, and I don't think they'd hesitate to use tactical nukes if the situation gets more and more desperate for them. Here on the domestic politics front, but also speaking of Putin, what do you think of this administration line basically blaming inflation on Putin and on various Republicans as well? I mean, it seems laughable to me because they're also still claiming Jen Psaki said this yesterday that inflation is transitory. She endorsed that word again, which sort of blew my mind. So it's transitory. It's temporary. It's not our fault. Uh, blame Greg Abbott in Texas. Blame Ron DeSantis in Florida and blame Vladimir Putin in Moscow. How's that playing in Wisconsin? Well, I don't think anyone is buying it. I mean, it's it's desperate. It's it's unserious. Um, I, I think they sense the what's coming in the midterm elections and they're lashing out uh, for lack of a, a, a message. Um, and all you need to do is look at a graph of inflation. It didn't start on, you know, February 24th with the mm-hmm. Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right. Gas prices, uh, though they've climbed higher since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, were already skyrocketing in the year prior to invasion. So I, I don't think anyone is buying this latest desperate attack. And it just goes to show you how fundamentally unserious some of the people in the administration are uh, about all this. Um, and the, the biggest missing piece of our strategy, our, our economic strategy against the Russians at a time when the president has promised to turn Vladimir Putin in, in a, into a pariah is to end the domestic war against American energy production and unleash the true power of American energy. That is the best thing that we could do to undermine Vladimir Putin and help our own citizens over the long term. But this administration continues its assault on American energy production, which I believe is being driven by a radical base on the far left that is absolutely obsessed with climate change uh, and does not understand the role that fossil fuels will have to continue to play as we invest in innovation in renewables over the long term. And so it's creating absolute incoherence in certain foreign policy areas, not just with Russia, but also with our our China strategy as well. Last question briefly. It's a Wisconsin politics question. We've mentioned it a few times on the show, the county executive role in Kenosha County. I know that's not your district down in southern Wisconsin, but for the first time in decades, that position, that office has fallen into the hands of the Republicans thanks to voters. There was an election down there. I think the people of Kenosha have been through a lot in the last few years, and now you have a Republican in that spot. Your thoughts on that, Congressman? Well, I think it reflects two things. One you mentioned is that um, just specifically what happened in Kenosha, where our incompetent governor and lieutenant governor, who is likely to be the Democratic nominee for the Senate against Ron Johnson, went out and blamed the cops uh, and then poured fuel uh, on the fire and Kenosha burned down as a result. And the people are fed up with uh, opportunistic politicians doing stuff like that. 
And the second thing is that we, as a Republican Party in Wisconsin, have spent an enormous amount of time over the last year investing in local elections, recruiting good candidates to run, and building an infrastructure that not only will serve us well for school board elections, for county executive elections, but ultimately in congressional and Senate elections in the fall. That's why I'm so optimistic about our chances, and we're continuing to learn lessons from these experiences. And so uh, it's, it's a good sign, both for the people of Kenosha, but, all, but for just common-sense people in Wisconsin who want better leaders. GOP Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin 8, my guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Congressman, always enjoy it. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. And we'll be right back after this on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show happy hour. Thank you very much for listening. We have a new clip of the vice president, Kamala Harris, who had some things to say about inflation. She was asked about inflation. And here was part of her answer in Cut 29. Well, first of all, I acknowledge one must acknowledge um, that prices are going up. So she's acknowledging the acknowledgement, which is good of her. After a long pause, that's what she came up with. First of all, pause. She acknowledges the acknowledgement that prices are going up. Okay, good. It's actually a little bit better than what we heard from Jen Psaki at the White House yesterday, who was embracing the word transitory again, which is just amazing. We talked about that earlier. But just the turn of phrase, acknowledge the acknowledgement. Just play it again, Cut 29. Well, first of all, I acknowledge one must acknowledge um, that prices are going up. It's good. Well said, as usual, making that point in her own very special way. So let's add it to the montage. Cut 30. We will assist Jamaica in COVID recovery um, by assisting in terms of the recovery efforts in Jamaica that have been essential to, I believe, what is necessary to strengthen the significance of the passage of time. It is time for us to do what we have been doing that has a a, a long history of of being part of america's history i acknowledge one must acknowledge there is great significance to the passage of time and that time is every day (laughs) so good it's going to keep growing the vice president of the united states and her pearls of wisdom on the guy benson show which continues in this happy hour next Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier on the program, in our first hour, we caught up with General Jack Keane, a retired four-star general. We had a lot of questions about the latest coming out of Ukraine. We also talked a bit about Afghanistan. And here's part of my conversation with Jack Keane earlier. A big development, the sinking of a very important Russian ship. Now, the Ukrainians say that they did it with this mission where they distracted the Russians and then uh, torpedoed the ship, or there was a a missile that they used, a Neptune missile. Uh, That ship has been abandoned and is sinking or has sunk. And we know that other Russian naval vessels have now moved out of the area. 
Uh, they're trying to claim that this might have just been a fire on board, some sort of accident, but I don't know why they would move the rest of their fleet out of there if it was just uh, a weird accident on one ship. It seems more likely that the Ukrainians were able to strike a pretty major blow here. What are you seeing and reading about this? What's the significance of this development? Well, it is very significant because what the Ukrainians are trying to do here uh, with their land forces is occupy the land associated with the southern coast of, of Ukraine, which would force Ukraine to be a landlocked country and would deny them access to the Sea of Azov and also to the Black Sea. And it would be devastating economically uh, to the Ukrainians. So, and short of that, let's assume that their land forces aren't able to occupy that entire coastline. Uh, But let's also assume that Mariupol falls, and that way they have a land bridge, uh, certainly to Crimea. But it would be their navy uh, that would enforce the blockade and deny the Ukrainians the port of Odessa, even though the Ukrainians still own that port. And that is one of the reasons why, uh, first of all, the fact that we've given them— they have anti-ship weapons, and Neptune they didn't get from us. But nonetheless, we have harpoons, but they can't use them because they don't have the launch systems uh, to do that. Um, but it's very significant because it sends a, a huge message to the uh, to the Russians about what their objectives are. But I, I, I really believe that the United States and NATO should be back in international waters in the Black Sea. I, I thought it was— uh, somewhat shameful that when this uh, the precursor to the invasion, you know, back prior to February, uh, we pulled all of our sh- all of our ships out of the Black Sea and gave the Russians, you know, free reign. I thought that was really a mistake. I'm not talking about having a trying to get into a maritime conflict with the Russians in the Black Sea, but we have a right to be there as well. And the fact that we just abandoned the field, uh, it made no sense to me. But it it is significant, and your your logic is absolutely right. I mean, Ukrainians are claiming they did this. We have no reason to doubt it. And and certainly the fact that the Russians once again are pulling all their ships away, like they did once before when Ukrainians uh, damaged one of their ships, it just tells what the truth really is. And so, yes. And this is the uh, Moskva is the name of this ship, and it's apparently the flagship for the Russian Navy in the Black Sea. So that is not only operationally significant, but also symbolically significant. Now you're rattling the Russians and making them feel like maybe they're not impenetrable, uh, you know, on the high seas. No, there's no doubt about it. This is a high-value capital asset in, uh, in the Russian Navy, and the uh, Ukrainians have, have landed them a very humiliated and embarrassing uh, defeat here. And, and certainly... Uh, the portends of, of what's to come. And I, I may say that even though the Russians are consolidating their forces uh, to launch attacks into the east, so far as we're tracking this at the Institute for the Study of War, the Russians are behaving much as they did for the Battle of Kiev, the capital city. By that I mean they're roadbound, single file down the roads, even though. Uh, even though this is open terrain that they're moving into, uh, it makes them very vulnerable to the Ukrainians. They're committing their forces piecemeal as opposed to putting – so audience, just bear with me a second. 
with open terrain like that, it's armor warfare. So you would put your tanks and armored vehicles out, spread them out in formations, attack formations supported by artillery. You would have air support covering all of that and then launch that offensive operation into the Ukrainians' defenses. And they're not doing that at all. And they're making uh, the same I mistakes, think, it sounds like. A- absolutely. It, the, the sa- they're almost conditioned uh, to make the same mistake. And I, I'm stunned by it again, uh, and I, I'm, I'm never going to underestimate the Ukrainians again. That, that's for sure. So I'm hoping uh, that they're able to continue what they're, what they're doing, and maybe this so-called new Russian offensive is not going to be anything uh, close to what the, the Russians think it'll be. Question for you, General Keene. I was thinking about this last night. We talked about this example on this show, and a few of our guests have brought it up as well. The U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson surprising the world by arriving in Kiev and meeting face-to-face with Zelensky, walking the streets of Kiev, a very powerful signal, I think. My full exchange with four-star retired General Jack Keene available in its entirety for free online at GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast available there. That's the whole show every day, free of charge, on demand, round the clock. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. Lots of options. When we come back the home stretch, what's in a name? The age-old baby naming dilemma has a new, interesting, modern, somewhat capitalistic twist that we'll get into. I find it a bit strange. That's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, Friday Eve. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast always free every day. I'll be on TV about an hour from now. Special report. I'll be on the panel with Brett and company. Hope to see you there on Fox News Channel. So this story caught my eye yesterday, and I wanted to talk about it yesterday, actually, during the home stretch. but we had producer Christine off, plus there was a sports story that we could do in her absence, since she's not a big sports person. This one I figured she might have some thoughts on, and it turns out she does. New York Post has a piece about a 33-year-old woman who makes a living as a professional baby namer. Rich people fork over large sums of money to let this woman, Taylor Humphrey, help name their children. Expectant parents paying upward of $1,500 to this woman to pick the perfect name for their child. She says that some parents who are sort of in a panic are even coughing up ten grand to help them settle on a name when there's a dispute, $10,000 on a baby name. Last year, she made more than $150,000 on what has to be a side hustle. She bills herself as a professional, passionate writer and storyteller who is adept at branding, marketing, and social media. Hell, I'll get passionate about this if I can make six figures. And I will say I actually have helped name a few of my friends' kids. Now, I won't dream up the name all on my own. They'll present options that they're thinking about. 
for middle names, potential first names, obviously, different combinations. So one of my friends, Kelly, actually picked the first and middle name for both of her sons. And I've helped with a few others. It did not occur to me to try to monetize this, turn it into a business. But 33-year-old Taylor Humphrey, apparently a lot smarter than I am in this sense, making 150 grand as a baby name consultant. I cannot imagine, number one, having enough money to even consider something like this. Number two, even if I did, calling up a stranger to name my child? That is just a totally, totally foreign concept. So we went around the horn on our call earlier today, the planning call, and sometimes when there's a good home stretch topic that's floated, we get talking about it on the call, and I'm sitting there like, no, save all of this. Save this for the air. But producer Christine, you know, was like a bull in a china shop just going on and on about her story. So I know what's coming here. You don't. Her daughter, Megan, who you've heard about many times on this show, who is sort of the calm adult in the room when it's just her and her mom. Now, she's a very mature young lady at age, is it nine now, Christine? Yes. Yes. With her mother, who's between the ages of 40 and 60, who's just uh, much more easily excitable, I think is one way of putting it. And you revealed, and you had not mentioned this before on the call earlier, that you did not want to name Megan, Megan. You had a different plan for Megan's name, and it was vetoed by Bobby. And this is one of the rare circumstances where I think I'm disagreeing with Bobby and agreeing with you. I guess the ship has sailed for Megan, but tell us the story. Well, I've always wanted to name, if I had a girl, I always wanted to name her Reagan after the late, great Ronnie. And then I I, I don't think I've ever told uh, the former governor this. I, I had a huge, still do, love of Governor Christie. So I wanted the name to be Reagan Christie. And Bobby was so against this. He said, she's going to grow up to be a liberal. She's going to hate you. She's going to wish that's not her name. So we settled on Megan because we just thought, like, it's just like a nice name. There's nothing. It's kind of close. Reagan, Megan, it's not way off. And Megan still, to this day, she always talks about it. She goes, you know, she'll tell anybody. My mommy wanted to name me Reagan after a president in the olden days. <laughs> so she would have been fine with Reagan, it sounds like. Although the 80s were not exactly the olden days, but to a nine-year-old, I guess they are. Yeah, I, I think she would have been okay. She just thinks it's funny that uh, mommy lost to daddy. I mean, she always hmm. thinks that's funny. So, but I, I really, it's I. It's also, sh- I think, a pretty name. And I, if she didn't like that it was named after a certain president, I don't know if she would necessarily resent you for that. It's still a nice name. Plus, modern day liberals and progressives are always obsessing over the latest Republican that they hate. Reagan, right, will be fine, right? Bush is already getting rehabilitated in a lot of their minds. It's Trump and then whoever comes next. So, Reagan will be very much old news in terms of like the burning hatred thing. So I think that was a miscalculation on Bobby's part. Is Bobby a lib? Is Bobby against naming someone Reagan because he doesn't like Reagan? Um, So he will tell you, no, not at all. He's not. He'll tell you he's a real Republican. Uh, But no, I think I think I 
I can see it actually over the past 10 years that we've been married. He is going further and further to the left. And um, that's concerning. It's very concerning. It's very concerning. But yeah, I do listen to this show. Can we help reel him back in? He does listen to this show. He does. I think he listens more for uh, home stretched. Keeping (laughs) tabs on his wife and also learning things about his life. Right. On I mean, the show. He learned a lot. I mean, remember when I was going to put the house up for sale? He didn't know about that mm-hmm. before. There's plenty of things. I mean, how many birthday parties did I spend so much more on things he didn't know, you know, like bounce houses that were coming? But he I learned know, you it. you reveal things. So he's doing almost like opposition research, but listening I, to the show. I do have one question before you move on. Can we think about down the road when Guy Benson has little Bensons of his own? Um, I know you're probably not going to use it for the first name, but could Cookie be a middle name option? I'm not going to even dignify that with a serious response. Instead, I'm going to move on to Wyatt because Wyatt has a fun story on this subject of his own. You were nameless, Wyatt, for days. Yes. Supposedly I was nameless for about, I think, two days in the hospital. My parents could not settle on a name for me. Was it because they hadn't picked one out or you were – a surprise in terms of your gender? Because my brother, this happened with my brother, my parents were expecting a girl. They didn't do the testing, but they just knew. The pregnancy was totally different than my mom's experience with me. I'm the oldest. And as my brother, they're like, oh, we've got a girl on the way, girl's name picked out, done and dusted. And then he was a boy. And they were just sort of frozen in time. They couldn't settle on a name and eventually i think the nurses said you must name this child like this is a person we cannot stop referring to this person as baby benson you need to pick a name and they finally landed on james which is a great name but that was the source of the hang up there they just weren't expecting a boy in your case it sounds like maybe that wasn't what was happening were there other options at play See, I don't know what the real reason behind it was, but I could probably think that I was the first out of all the cousins and everyone in the family to change the first letter of the name. It, everyone started with a D before me, so I, I kinda, all of them. Yeah, so I kind of cracked the the mold of of changing the first letter of the name with a W for Wyatt. Um, but my my grandmother, she fought hard hard for uh, Derek after Derek Jeter. So I, there was a possibility that I could have been named Derek after. Which would have stuck with the tradition of D's. Exactly. Derek after Derek Jeter. Any other names that they were thinking about? I, possibly after after the doctor who I guess delivered me. I wow. think it was John. It was, <laughs> I, that was his name. They were like, make him, make him that. So I, I don't know. Are you grateful that it ended with the decision that it did, Wyatt? I actually am. I, I actually really like my name. So I'm very, very happy. And the other thing is, if you were John or Derek, War Derek doesn't really roll off the tongue like War Wyatt does, right? And you would have never had YY the Clown. That would never have happened. So I think we should all be grateful at this show that your parents made the decision that they ultimately did. But they did not pay a stranger $1,500 or more to settle on Wyatt. They were normal human beings who made decisions for themselves. Yes, that's correct. (laughs) Christine, if you were at a crossroads and just totally stuck, just an impasse, a quagmire on a baby name, would you ever consider paying someone to just make the decision for you? Yeah, 100%. Yes. Of course, you know I would do that, especially, I mean, if I had the money. And 
Bobby would probably kill me, but you know I Couldn't you have just asked your medium or your hypnotist or your therapist or your psychiatrist or your whole ensemble? Couldn't you have I didn't have had one of them, them give like get a get a vision of the correct name and then communicate that to you for all that money that you're paying? I didn't have all of them in my life when I had Megan. Those just came within the past couple years or year. Okay. Fair enough. So the point is if you had a surprise new baby on the way, they might be involved in the naming process these days? Totally. I think that's really cool because they obviously have, like, great suggestions. And, like, because I also, I love the name Bryn, B-R-Y-N-N, but I'm not going to say my last name, but it it doesn't sound great with my last name on uh, back-to-back. So, like, maybe she could help me come up with something that I hadn't thought about. I think it's a great idea. I think what we would do is tweet a poll from at cookies jar 1988 and that's how you'd name your kid these days maybe you could have get a lot of engagement you'd get some followers and the internet would pick your kid's name just like the internet picked your twitter handle well maybe when i finally get that horse although i do have a name remember glenn was the name i picked out but if we don't go with glenn on the racehorse maybe they can help me there well you had a horse a small one and we all know what happened to poor carousel And we're out of time. We can't. No rebuttal. Sorry. We've got to go. i got to get ready for special report. Coming up at the end of next hour on Fox News Channel, I'm on the panel tonight. Also back here tomorrow on the radio, 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday. We will talk to you then. Have a wonderful evening. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.